Grab your Bible this morning and turn into the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. And if you uh, say to yourself, well, that sounds kind of familiar, it's because it is. And if you uh, remember that that's from last week, it's because it is. I, uh, gonna, I'm going to take off on a part two this morning, if that's okay with you. And if it's not okay with you, you'll have to take it up with the Lord, because it was His idea. Uh, I didn't get even a quarter of the way through what I really wanted to, to say last week, and so... Uh, it just kind of it just kind of hung. Ever heard the expression? It hung in my craw. Well, it kind of hung in my spiritual craw, and I want to uh, uh, revisit it this morning. So, if you turn to the Book of Hebrews, chapter number nine, verse um, number twenty-seven, and I'm going to ask you to stand your feet one more time, and we're going to honor God's word this morning as we read it. And just as it is appointed to man once to die. And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for Him. Let's pray. Father, we look to You again, the author and the finisher of our faith. I recognize today that I'm I'm just a man. Lord, I'm prone to failure like everybody else. And uh, these words today, God, my words will do nobody no good. But today, if by Your Spirit, Lord, You speak through me as a vessel, and open your word to the hearts of men. God, it can change us and it can prepare us. And I pray for that this day in Jesus' name. Everybody give me a good shout of amen this morning. Amen. amen. Hey, not too shabby, not too shabby. We know Jesus came once. And last week, if you were here, you remember we'd talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I figure the second coming of Jesus Christ is worth the second, uh, second sermon about it, right? And if you remember last week, if you were here, some of you were here, some of you wasn't. So... Uh, the, the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus Christ uh, is so very important. It's just as important as the first coming of Jesus Christ because, number one, the whole reason Jesus came the first time was because he's coming a second time, right? And, uh, and unfortunately, in many of church circles today, it's not talked about an awful lot. Um, but Jesus talked a lot about his second coming. And so, you know, a lot of people don't have a problem. History, every, there's a lot of historical documents outside of the Bible that prove that Jesus Christ came the first time. Now, the argument with people is, who is he? Is he who he said he was? Because he said he's the Son of God. He said that he was God in flesh and that he was the only way to the Father. So everybody's got to determine whether or not they believe him or not. But nobody really argues the fact that Jesus came to this earth the first time. And so if he came the first time and we believe him to be who he said he is, the Son of God, then we have to believe that Jesus is coming back again to put uh, this world, to set this world back the way God originally intended it. Amen? How many of you still believe in the devil? I would think that many people believe that there is one. We talked about him in Sunday school just a little bit. Well, if I were the devil, I would want to hide the fact that Jesus is coming back. I would want to convince people that that's not going to happen and get people to not really think about it much. If I was the devil, that's what I would do because our whole life really is supposed to be pointing towards that one event. Now, as humans, we have a tendency to point our lives towards you know, family, which is good, and we have a tendency to point our lives towards retirement, and that's good. But ultimately, our whole uh, existence is supposed to be pointed towards that one event when Jesus returns. Some people will be on this earth. It could, we could be the ones that are on this earth still alive when Jesus returns. But the thing about it, if, if Jesus doesn't come back for another hundred years, you and I could stand before him today, right? And so our whole life is pointed towards uh, this one event. So obviously, 
uh, Hollywood's not doing us any favors, you know, when it comes to the second, when it comes to the end of time, because Hollywood, you know, what do they do? They put some, you know, shaggy bum in an old dirty coat and, you know, crazy hair and wild eyes standing on a, you know, on a street corner saying the end is near, right? And so uh, Hollywood likes to make the idea of the end of time some far-fetched, weird, that if you think that way, you must be some weird, crazy person. Uh, but that's not the case, right? I mean, if we believe that the earth had a beginning, how, much, how hard is it for us to believe that the earth will have an ending as well, right? And uh, when it comes to the end, the second coming of Christ, man, it's a good thing because, see, God created everything to be perfect. He created us to have bodies that would never get sick. He created us to have bodies that would never feel pain. He created us uh, that we might live forever with our loved ones and never be parted by death. That was God's intention for us, but we as human beings are sinful and rebellious by nature. And so when, since we rebelled against God, that brought sin and sickness and pain and death and all of these things into the human race. So ultimately, death and Jesus coming again is God's way of getting us out of this mess, right? It's a, it's a good thing when we think about the second coming of Jesus Christ if our lives are uh, wrapped up in Him. So um, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter number 24. We kind of read through that a little bit uh, last week, and I want to kind of pick up where I left off. <clears throat> I figure if Jesus gave an, a lot of attention to this topic, then I, as a minister of the gospel, should probably give a pretty good amount of uh, attention to this topic. Amen? And I, I might say this as we go through this this morning, because uh, as Jesus kind of gives a, a pretty good detail of what things are going to be like, he says, at the coming of the Son of Man, which is Him, at the second coming of Jesus, he gives a good indication of what the world will be like. And in one way, when you read it and you think about uh, through Matthew 24, you know, last week we talked about the wars and the rumors of wars and the earthquakes in various places. And, uh, and you get to reading into Revelation and what the world, what's going to happen in the earth at the end of time. And it can be scary when you read it and you think, oh my goodness, this is, this is horrible. So keep in mind as we read through this and we're thinking about the second coming of Jesus uh, when the wicked will be judged and the righteous will receive their reward that it, it doesn't have to create an uncomfortable feeling in you. If you're, if you're looking at this and you're thinking, oh no, and, you're, and it's a negative feeling, what you need to do first and foremost is just take a look at Jesus and, and ask yourself the question, am I saved? Right? If I have made Jesus Christ my Savior, then I have no reason to fear any of the things that we read about in this book and what we think about in the end of time. Amen? So the good news is, if you read this and it makes you feel uneasy and you think, I've, not, I've never been saved, I've never made Jesus my Savior, then this is the perfect opportunity to do it. These type of messages isn't about pointing a bony finger and you know, preaching damnation on everybody and uh, it's doomsday and you know, repent or you go to hell. It's about, it's about just opening our eyes to realize that, that this world isn't all that there holds. I mean, you don't have to be a really spiritual person to recognize that there, are, there is good in the world and there's evil in the world. That good has to have a source and that evil has to have a source. And every person makes choices depending on which way they want to go, right? So the good news is uh, God's got all of this under control. And as long as we are on his side, we don't have anything to fear and worry about. Amen? The coming, the second coming of Jesus can be, it should be an exciting thought. Amen? And not a fearful thought. So as we read through this, um, keep that in mind. We left off, I think it was, in verse number um, I think I got down to verse 39. We were uh, talking. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, 
uh, so will it also be in the last days. In other words, he uses the story of Noah as an illustration, and uh, just to kind of touch base on that real quick, and then we'll get into the rest of this. And you know the story, in, in Noah's day, the world was uh, wicked and it was corrupt, and God was going to destroy it, bring it to an end as they knew it anyway. And so he speaks to, to Noah, and he says, you need to build an ark and get everybody that will believe, get them on the ark, because I'm going to flood the earth and destroy it. And so we know that only uh, Noah and his family were the only ones to get on the ark. Everybody else rejected the idea. They'd never seen rain before. Noah was this crazy-eyed guy, you know, with the weird hair. Oh, he's, just, he's nuts. He's the guy with the sign. You know, the end is near. And so everybody just kind of rejected what he had to say. Um, but he went ahead and was faithful, built the ark, got on it. And the Bible says, until the flood came and swept them all away. So there was that moment when it was too late that the people realized Noah was right, right? And so Jesus said it'll be the same way in the end of time, just like the people were uh, eating and drinking and giving in marriage, marrying and giving in marriage. And what that, basically all that means is that the people in Noah's day were just living life like usual. They'd get up every morning, they'd go to work. They'd go to the ball games. They would go, I mean, they just lived life and they just didn't really give any thought to God much in their life. And so because they just were caught up in their own life and, and fought, uh, forgot about that, then the destruction came suddenly. And that's what, if there's one thing Jesus tried to get across every single time he talked about his second coming, it was the fact that it would happen suddenly. It would be in a moment when nobody was expecting it, people just living their lives. And that's why he compels us over and over again just to be ready, Amen. right? To keep our, our attention upon him and live our lives uh, in a way and in a manner that is you know, ready and prepared for his coming. And so just like it was when the flood came and took them all away unaware, Jesus said, that's the way it's going to be when I come back. It'll be in a moment when nobody's really ready, and we'll catch them unaware. So then that picks us up in verse 40. It says, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming... He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, every, every person, especially every man, every father in the room can understand this concept, right? How many of you guys got a sidearm beside your bed? Yeah, go ahead. And, I mean, Second Amendment, it's legal. We can still do it. I did see on the news the other day some goober was saying, oh, well, the Second Amendment doesn't mean you can keep a gun beside your bed. I dare him to break into my house in the middle of the night, right? Um, so anybody that keeps, how many of you keep an arsenal next to your bed? I mean, it's, it's not, not just a pistol, but I mean, literally, you know, you could take out a whole, uh, a whole mob that comes into your house uh, in the middle of the night. But we understand the concept. Uh, I've never read, I, I guarantee you, if somebody, if a thief uh, living around you is planning on robbing your house, pretty certain he's not going to write you a note uh, and leave it on your door and say, just so you'll know, uh, tomorrow night at 9 o'clock I'm going to break into your house. That's not how thieves work. How do they work? They come when you don't expect it. They come when you're either away or when you're asleep. And so what we do as men is we keep something ready just in case that'll happen. Now, the, I mean, it's not likely that that's going to, but it could and it does. And so we're always prepared and ready. And that's what Jesus ultimately is using as an example for how we should be prepared in our own life. He said, I'm going to come like a thief does in the night when you don't expect it. Jesus said, I am not going to write you and I'm not going to give you, I'm going to give you some little signs and warnings and things to let you know that the time is getting close, but I'm not going to let you know the hour and the day. 
Like I said last week, if God did it that way, we would just kind of live willy-nilly, loosey-goosey. You know, we would just live life our way and ignore God. And then 10 minutes before Jesus comes, we'd make it all right. And uh, that may sound like a fun way of living for us. We'd like it that way. But that's just not God's intention. He said, I'm looking for a people without spot and wrinkle. Not necessarily I'm looking for perfect people with no, with no flaws because that would knock all of us out. He said, I'm just looking for people who, who love me and recognize that I created them, that I died for them. And I'm just looking for people who want to live for me, right? And that's ultimately... So he doesn't give us that moment like a thief. We just got to always be prepared and be ready. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Who is his master, uh, excuse me, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing, then he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all the possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a phrase we see throughout the Scripture when Jesus is talking about um, that place where those who reject Christ go, obviously. So, again, and my point, my purpose in this, I could be laboring and go on every detail. But really, when it comes to the second coming of Jesus and some of these things, it doesn't require a whole awful lot of interpretation. I mean, Jesus was pretty plain uh, pretty plain with it. So again, my purpose isn't necessarily to go into the detail of every line other than to show you how cohesive and how uh, methodical Jesus was about laying out how prepared we ought to be. But ultimately here saying, you know, if, a, if and, and he's kind of talking to us as a church, I think more so, because we, we as the church people, we like to think about them old sinners out there that need to get right before Jesus comes, right? And that's true. But Jesus is also trying to talk to his Oh, holy people here in our holy pews on our holy hind ends uh, saying basically he's talking about the servants that he left in charge. And who is that? That's the church. He's left us in charge of sharing the gospel with people. And he, he talks here about a man who was left in charge of his master's affairs. But after the master had been gone for a while, he decides to himself, well... He's been gone so long, he probably ain't going to come back. And he just starts claiming the stuff for himself and treating everybody bad. And he said, there's going to come a day, Jesus said, when the master's going to come back and determine how well you ran his stuff, right? And so that's, that's the challenge for us as the church is that he has left us as stewards over his business, over the gospel. And so if we as, it, as the church get lazy on this whole idea and we kind of start running church our way and we, we're more concerned about our religion than we are about the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus said, I'm going to come back and even the church isn't going to be ready for it. And that's scary. I mean, we know that there's going to be a number of people that, that reject Christ that aren't going to be ready for his coming. But let it not be said of the church that we're not ready when Jesus comes. We should be looking. Now, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. I've been in ministry for several years. I don't, and I'll be the first to admit, I don't, you know, every day wander around looking at the clouds thinking, boy, Jesus could come back today, but I should. Even as a church, it's easy to get caught up in eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and just living life. And we should live life to its fullest, I believe. I think we should occupy till he comes. We should live life and enjoy. We don't, I don't think we should walk around all the time wringing our hands and, and you know, just get, cutting everybody loose because we think, oh, well, what point is, what's the point? Because, you know, Jesus come back tomorrow. No, I think we should live our life and enjoy it. But we should do it around the fact, knowing and understanding, always in the back of our mind, thinking this could be the day. This could be the day. Because we get numb, right? We get numb to the idea Especially if you've been in church your whole life, like myself, and some of you, 
We've, we've, we sing about it all the time. We hear about it all the time that Jesus is coming back. I mean, all fly away and all that. Uh, we, we, we have it and we get numb to the, to the idea. You kind of get used to stuff after a while, right? I remember, I mean, when I worked at the bank, I was uh, uh, kind of in charge of the security. One of my many jobs was a security officer, and I had to make sure that, uh, you know, the, the, the staff was properly trained in the event of a robbery. Um, we had to know what to do. And, and we had never been robbed before. We didn't know really what to expect, but we had to be prepared anyway, right? And so I would put uh, signs, little signs on the bathroom mirrors that would say, this could be the day that we're robbed. And the idea was that it's to kind of help break up the monotony of everyday life where you really don't think about it, right? And so when you'd see that, the idea was that when you would see that sign, it would just stop and make you think, you know, I better be careful on how I do my job, make sure I'm not leaving cash out on the, you know, I mean, just thinking it may not, it, but it might, and I've got to be prepared. But oddly enough, what happened is that over a, after over a period of time, you, you go to the mirror, you, you're fixing your hair, you're popping the zit, and you don't ever see the sign. You're just getting numb, and you get used to the sign that says this could be the day, and you, and you go away thinking, well, it's not going to happen. And so that's why the Lord, throughout the Word of God, is just you know, stirs our hearts to prepare us, and we can get numb to it. But as the church, we shouldn't get numb to the idea that Jesus is going to come back again. Amen? Ought to be something that we're looking forward to. So then we go on into chapter number 25. <clears throat> Let me grab a drink here real quick. Going to chapter number 25, where Jesus kind of uses a couple parables, again, to illustrate uh, what it's going to be like in that moment. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. How many virgins were there? Ten. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. How many, bride, I mean, how many virgins were there? How many of them were asleep? Okay. Now, five of them were read, wise and prepared. Five of them weren't, but they were all sleeping. Right? What does that tell me? It means that we as a church, even, if we're not careful, can be sleeping. Right? But as they all slept, uh, here's, there was a, a, a cry came. What time was it? At midnight. Now, what is it typically everybody's doing at midnight? Sleeping. It's, I mean, if you're going to rob somebody's house or if you're going to really want to get the jump on somebody, midnight's a good time to do it because we're all asleep. We're not ready for it. At midnight, there came a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of this just for sake of time, but you have to understand, you know, weddings were a lot different back in those days, the Jewish wedding, than they are today. I mean, we had, you know, if the bride and groom, if it goes more than 15 minutes, they're getting nervous up there. They want it over with. Uh, we did one yesterday the same way. But, but in, uh, you know, Jewish custom, it was done a certain way. I mean, the, the, the groom went to prepare a place for his bride, right? I mean, they, they were engaged. They were going to get married. And he just went to get everything all prepared and ready for her. And she, her only job was just to be ready. Have everything packed. Have everything ready. Because he was going to come back and get her and take them to the marriage. And it, I mean, it was a big deal. It was a big parade. The, the bridegroom would show up and all their friends and all their people and they would be a big parade as he takes her back to that place that he had prepared. And so she just always had to be ready. That's, that was the nature of those days in the wedding. And so Jesus is using that as an illustration. Jesus is the bridegroom who he said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, that's us, that's the bride, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will 
come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. To take us as the bride um, to, to the marriage. And so that's the example. So here we got the ten virgins and they know he could come at any moment. We just have to be ready. Five of those virgins were wise. They thought to themselves, okay, I've got my lamp and it's full, full of oil, okay? But I don't know when he's going to come. And, and so if, what's going to happen if this runs out? I better have some extra. So they, they kept, they've got a flask or another vessel that they keep extra oil in because their mentality was, I just want to be prepared. I don't have to know when he's coming. The disciples were always like, Jesus, tell us when you're coming. We, they, everybody wants to know the, they want to know the details. And there's all kinds of preachers today. You can buy books. You can watch it on the internet. There's always somebody that wants to give you just detail by detail how this is all going to happen because we want to know. That's not the way it works. And like I said last week, if somebody says the Lord's going to come back on that day, you can pretty much guarantee he ain't going to come back on that day, right? But there's always somebody trying to figure it out. We're not trying to figure out or crack some sort of apocalyptic code here. You know I mean? It's, we're just trying to be ready and live for Jesus. And, when he comes. and that's, that, that was the mindset of the five wise virgins. I don't know when he's going to come. I'm just going to be ready. I'll have, I want to make sure I've got plenty. I've got enough. And that's a picture of the person that recognizes Jesus is going to come back. I don't know when, but I just I want to be filled with his spirit. I want to be I want to be about his business. I just want to be ready. I want to make sure that I have enough, right? So I'm going to I'm going to study his word. I'm going to I'm going to come to the house of God. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to uh, you know talk to people. I'm going to get my house in order. I'm going to I'm just going to be ready. As opposed to the five who thought like is really a representation of the majority of people kind of surprised jesus did it equally here <laughs> in reality most people have the mentality like the five foolish versions that just think ah, i got plenty of time i mean they've, they've said jesus is coming for years or or i'm only i'm only 22 years old you know i mean i have plenty of time and so a lot of people most people take that approach i'm good enough right i have enough that was the mentality of the five foolish virgins eh, i got enough of my, i got enough and it turned out not to be enough. And so what we, we, we do as human beings is we have a tendency to say, well, I'm good enough. I haven't, that's, you know, everybody's always go-to. I've never killed anybody, right? You know, I've never killed anybody. I don't rob banks. I'm, I'm good enough. And Jesus isn't looking for people who are good enough. He's looking for people who are just trusting in him, people who are looking for him. That's ultimately who he's, who he's coming after. And so these five foolish, uh, we, have, we have plenty. But then, but then it all kind of hit the fan when the bridegroom came unexpectedly. Right? Then all, uh, all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Everybody say the door was shut. There, there just comes a moment. When is that moment? I don't know. It was, that was the, that's what happened in, with Noah in the ark, right? Yeah. Noah built the ark. Noah preached. Noah, Noah warned everybody. And, there, and, and God, God's mercy, no doubt, he held it off as long as he could. God always does. He, when God's going to bring judgment, he holds it as long as he possibly can, compelling people to repent. And he, God would rather, let me tell you this, God would rather give people mercy than wrath. He would. God is a God of wrath, and one day he will pour his wrath out on a, on, a, uh, on a world that rejected him, but he'd way rather give mercy and love and forgiveness. And so he would hold it off, and he held it off with Noah, but there'd just come a moment when God said, okay, that's it. And the Lord is the one that shut the door. 
And so there, there's that moment. When is that moment? I don't know. For me, it'll be, the, if, it'll be either the moment that I die or it'll be the moment that Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. That's the shut door. And so we want to be prepared on this side of the shut door. Amen? So the, the feast came, the, the door was shut. So everybody that was in was in, but everybody that was out that was out. And it wasn't going to change anything at that moment. Afterward, the other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you do, neither, uh, you do know neither the day nor the hour. You see what Jesus is getting across here. First of all, what do we see here? The foolish virgins said to the wise virgins, Give us some of yours. And I want you to understand this morning, especially you young people, understand today that you're, you're not going to go to heaven because you were born into a Christian home. We're not automatically Christians because we're born into it. I, I heard a guy's testimony this week, and he, he was like, uh, what was he, 65, in his 60s, uh, before he got saved. And he said, I just, when people would ask me if I was a Christian, I would tell him yes. He said, I thought I was a Christian because I was born in the United States. You know, we're technically a Christian nation, so he just automatically assumed he kind of fell under that umbrella. It just doesn't work like that. You know, we're not, we're, not, we're not Christians because we're born into a Christian home. Every single person has to make the personal decision to follow Jesus or not. And so these people were like, well, give us some of yours. And they, and they were like, no, it doesn't work that way. I can't give you some of mine. You should have had your own. What you need to do is go get your own, right? You need to make things ready. So we don't ride anybody's coattail to heaven. We make the decision on our own. But what happened was... By this point, it was too late. While they went scurrying around trying to get ready, uh, what's, the, what's the saying? You know, time to go is not time to get ready. How many of you are annoyed by your family? When it's time to go, you need to be going out the door at, 10, at 9.40 to get here on church before 10, right? And it's time to go, and everybody's just now getting ready. What happens then come 10 o'clock? You're late. A little side jab right there, but uh, <clears throat> anyway, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, Dorothy, we still want you to come, but it'd be better if you were here early. Um, but you know, time to go is not time to get ready. You, I want my, I like to get places early, so I want my family ready beforehand. And that's what Jesus is saying by this parable: is that it was time to go, it wasn't time to start getting ready. And and if we wait until you know, we think, well, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll have a few minutes on my deathbed or maybe I'll have time before Jesus comes. He just, he's, he's trying to get across here. It doesn't work like that. Um, have to take care of business for ourselves beforehand. Now, now we go on to verse number 14. For it will be like a man going on a, on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to, uh, to his property. To one he gave five talents, which is a number of, of money. <clears throat> to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, then he went away. Um, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long, now this is the most important verse here. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Okay, now keep that in mind. The master, after a long time, the master came back and settled accounts. That's ultimately what Jesus is coming to do, to settle the account, to determine how did we decide to live our life while he was gone, right? We're going to settle it all up. So he comes back to settle accounts, and he who had received the five talents came forward, 
bringing the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. <clears throat> In other words, he invested the amount of money that his, his master gave him, and he doubled his master's money. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful, faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. How many of you think that sounds pretty good? And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. I invested the two that you gave me, and here I doubled your money. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of the master. So this guy's got it made. He also, who had received one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Uh, here you have what is yours. In other words, here's your one talent back that you gave me. But his, ma his master answered and said, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Uh, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, has will more be given, and he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a weeping and gnashing of teeth again. The whole idea here, a lot of people try to, the prosperity Preachers like to take this parable and make it out to be that Jesus is talking about he wants us to be rich, right? Take our money and multiply it. This, this, this parable has nothing to do with our money. It has nothing to do with our money. It has everything to do with the most valuable thing in our possession, and that's our soul. I mean, who cares about our money? The big scheme of things, you know, the Bible says, what, if you gain the whole world and lose your soul, what good did that do? I mean, what did it do? I mean, the temporaries, the money's all temporary. So it's not about money here. What he's saying is he had entrusted somebody with something and they used what God had given them and multiplied it. But the one who hid it, the one who did nothing, was the one gave God no increase. Ultimately, what Jesus is looking for from, again, this is more directed to us as the church than it is the lost world out there. What Jesus is looking for from us as the church is increase. Not increase in money. God couldn't care less how much money is in our church bank account when he comes back. Couldn't care less. And he don't care how much is in yours. He's looking for an increase. What kind of increase is it? To be fruitful and multiply. That we would take the spirit that God has given us, right? We would take the resources and the facilities that God has given us. Use it to lead other people to Jesus Christ. Amen? God, and then on that day when we stand before God, we're able to say, Lord, I took what you gave me and I led more people to Christ. I gave you an, an increase when you returned to settle accounts. Now, you know as well as I do, if you were going on a long trip and you gave somebody $1,000 and said, here, I want you to take care of this, make me some money with this thing while I'm gone, and when, when you come back and they say, well, here's your 1000 here's another 1000 you're going to be pretty tickled with that. And hey, man, you're good, good job. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to give them 10000 next time, right? I mean, you, you want that increase. But if you leave somebody with the intention of making you money and say, well, here's your $1,000 back, I had better things to do. You're going to be kind of upset. And that's what Jesus is saying. Do we have better things to do? Or are we really about our Father's business? It's about, a, it's about an increase. Because it's about a church that is always looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because I promise you this. The world's not going to be looking for it if the church isn't looking for it. Isn't that true? 
Verse number 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from, the, from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now get this. For I, who's speaking here? Jesus is speaking here. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? When did we seek you, uh, see you sick and in prison and visit you? The king will answer, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it unto me. So they say, Well, Lord, I don't remember seeing you. When I, I mean, how many of you have ever seen Jesus in the flesh? Raise your hand, please. I need to speak to you after church if you have actually... We've not seen him. And so Jesus, if, he, if Jesus said to us on Judgment Day, well, you helped me. You fed me. You took me in. And we've never seen you. Well, Jesus, when did we do that? I mean, did you put on a disguise? He said, no. You helped other people. Right? What you've done for others, ultimately, Jesus said, you've done unto me. If you do something kind for my kids, I, 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 I take that as a, a, a favor to me. If you help my kid... I, I take that personally. I think that's awesome. I take that as a favor to me. And I want to honor you because of what you did for my children. And that's what God says. What you've done for other people. People is what God is concerned about. People is what God cares about. He didn't care about church and religion and all that. He cares about people. And so when we care about people, God said, now you've got my heart. And he takes that personal. I, I'm glad. You, you, you're helping my children and that's what I want you to do. On the vice versa, the people on the other side with the goats... Uh, that Jesus rejects, he said, you didn't help me, you didn't feed me, you didn't you clothe me. And they said, well, when, same concept, when did we not? And he said, you didn't help anybody. You lived your whole life for you and did absolutely nothing for anybody else. You made your existence all about you and you rejected people and you rejected me. Jesus uses that separation. There's another place where he talks about the wheat and the chaff, right? He said, ultimately... When it comes to the end of time, the second coming of Jesus is a big separation day. In this, in this illustration, this parable, um, he says it's, it's like a shepherd that puts his goats over here and his sheep over here. Or vice versa, I forget which. It, or, or about somebody who uh, grows a crop and they, they harvest it and they put all of the weeds and the chaff and the sticks and the worthless stuff over here and all of the wheat they put over here. Or it's like a, a fisherman who casts his net into the sea and he pulls it in and when he opens the net, there's rocks and there's Oakley sunglasses and there's uh, you know, Coke bottles and then there's fish and there's valuables, there's gold and so he separates all the valuable stuff here and throws all the worthless stuff aside. He, he, you see what Jesus is getting across, this separation day mentality, so shall it be when Jesus comes again. Ultimately, every human being who lives and who has ever lived will stand before God and He will literally separate us. And there's only two groups. There's only two groups. There's the group that accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary for their sins. This is the group that knew they were worthless. This is the group that knew that they were sinners, that didn't think they were perfect, that didn't live a perfect life. These are the people who just trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And this is the group that rejected Jesus Christ 
as their Savior. Two groups, that's it. There's not, you know, Methodists and Baptists and Pentecostals, and here's the, here's the ones that had, they didn't really have it right, but they had good intentions, and, not, you know, and these are the really bad people. Two groups. Those who accept Christ, those who don't. Jesus separates all of them. And those who have been separated, those who stand in the group of the sinners saved by grace, those with earthen vessels, weak, failing people, but we have the treasure of Christ within us, the Holy Spirit within us. Hallelujah. All of us, when Jesus returns, can rest assured that we spend eternity with the joy that he talked about there, joy and peace for eternity. Uh, and God resets everything the way he created it. Remember, like I said in the very beginning, God created us so that we wouldn't bleed and hurt and die. But we do because of our sin. So in the end, Jesus is resetting all that. See, we get a new body. Hallelujah. We get a new body. We get a new life. We get eternity in which God is resetting everything back the way that it was. I want to be a part of that. How about you? I want to be a part of that. Let me leave you with this verse. Luke 21 says this. It says, but watch yourselves. Look at your neighbor and say, watch yourself. Now, say it with a little more attitude. You watch yourself. Right? <laughs> Didn't say watch everybody else. Now, we have a responsibility to other people, no doubt about that, especially as a church. We should be on the lookout for other people because when we see somebody struggling, the Bible says we who are spiritual should restore those who are weak and those who are fallen. So, yeah, we should be watching for the spiritual well-being of others, but we don't stand and watch as a judge to determine you're not ready, you're not ready, you're going to hell, you're going to, you know, I mean, that's not at all what he's, he said, you need to watch yourself, right? Take a good long look at yourself, search your own heart, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things, that are going to take place, not that might take place or could take place, but are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Watch yourself. Don't be weighed down with the things of this life. That thing that holds your heart, just ask yourself a simple question, is it, is it temporary or is it eternal? Amen? And that in itself, folks, will guide our lives. You want to live a life. I know we turn on the news and we get all flustered you know about what we see in the news but if you want to live your life in a way i'm not saying that we we never get concerned or fearful but if you want to live your life in a way that no matter what happens around you you still you just still have this peace about you i mean you just you have this sense that no matter what happens it's all good right you only get that through a personal relationship with jesus christ so i'm gonna ask all of you to stand this morning as musicians come and prepare to sing a song of invitation not here to beg plead or bribe uh, or try to fool you or trick you into some sort of um, half-hearted or even false confession I just want you to know this morning that the invitation is open that uh, Jesus by way of his spirit is here dealing with hearts and if you if you've never made Jesus your Savior but you feel God dealing with your heart today we just want you to have opportunity to be saved this morning okay that's all this is about so as they sing if God's dealing with your heart I want you to pray. I want you to start praying right where you're at.